Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from under. Good afternoon. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. This is a public affair. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. And today we are talking about Twitter. Um, we're talking about social media and we're having a, a conversation about what it meant when Elon Musk bought Twitter last month. And since his very first day has been firing workers, he's been vowing to do away with censorship. And he briefly changed the blue check verification to a paid model, which led to a lot of confusion. We're doing this with Dr. Robin Kaplan, who is a senior researcher at Data and Science Research Institute. Robin's research explores the intersection of platform governance and media policy. Robin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for for joining us. And, you know, I I want to assume you and I are similar in age, um, but Mm -hmm. maybe not. So when did you first kind of discover social media? What was your introduction to social media? So I am, you know, I am an elder millennial. Uh, We are, you know, one of the first generations that supposedly experienced life both um, offline and online, but um, I was a very early adopter to most things internet. Um, so my family was very into um, computing when I was young, um, and um, I kind of first came online really um, when I was very, very young on my uncle's computer in in chat rooms and things like that. Oh, um, chat rooms, way to take yeah. us back. <laughs> Back to the 90s. Let's, Back let's to talk about AOL. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, but by the time I was growing up, I grew up in Canada. I had my first email by the time I was 11. Um, I was on ICQ by the time I was 14. And I was a pretty early adopter to the social media era as well um, in the mid-2000s. What was your first platform? Like, what? what's the first well, thing? Were you MySpace? Well, Were you... I was live journal, I think, even before MySpace. Okay. Uh, but even before that, if we consider GeoCities a platform uh, or a protocol, I was GeoCities even. I think I made like my own little GeoCities site when I was young. Um, it really depends on you know what we define as a platform um, to really kind of pinpoint that. But I was yeah, I was on MySpace, Facebook as soon as it became available in Canada. Um, Twitter, almost as soon as it became available, every single one. And I found out a little bit before the show that you are a parent. Um, and mm-hmm. as somebody who, you know, was raised with the Internet and was, uh, you know, had an email at the age of 11. How do you feel about like your early exposure to the world online? Um, and, you know, do you think you'll introduce your own child to to social media and the online you know world differently than you were introduced I think I will you know my experiences of social media especially coming coming online just even using email when I was 11 you know a lot of those bad experiences that I was having in real life going into middle school were kind of transported into online life but also a lot of the good experiences were as well I was a kid growing up in Canada as you know it's very cold there Um, it was a way to communicate with friends I had made um, actually a lot through a Jewish youth group that I used to belong to when I was a kid that like let me keep up friends from all over the world and transcend that like middle school environment that can be really tough. So I think I will. I mean, the challenge always with parents and kids is that the parents are always going to be a little bit behind in terms of understanding the norms and the culture and the ethics and the politics of the media that their kids are using. And so my parents, you know, as, as up into computing as my mom was, um, she had a hard time keeping up to date and guiding me through it. Hopefully, I will have an easier time guiding um, my my kids through it um, 
because of what my role is. I I wish you the best of luck. I have a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old and a 1-year-old and my 12-year-old is my like technology person. She is the the person who makes sure that I know what I'm doing on Zoom when I was teaching um remotely. <laughs> so, thank thank goodness for you, Adrian, and Azzy's pretty amazing at at figuring out how to use stuff on on devices, but they definitely understand, you know, by the time they're, you know, by the time they were both 7 they understood how to use my phone a little better than I did. Um, so I hope you stay stay up to date with it. And I think there's a lot there to think about. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for, for joining us today on WORT. I want to jump into this conversation about the recent kind of transformation or turmoil at Twitter. Um, how, how has, you know, your role positioned you to really have an analysis of what Elon Musk's leadership means to that organization and that platform. So I have been studying platforms for almost a decade now. Um, I'm a senior researcher at Data and Society Research Institute. And we actually started looking at the impact that um, kind of more centralized communications infrastructure could play within the public sphere back in 2015, um, and I was studying these issues a little bit before that as well, with a grant that we got called Who Who Controls the Public Sphere in an Era of Algorithms? Um, And what happened out of that project is that we um, basically created kind of a set of case studies of worst case scenarios, of kind of issues that can arise as power becomes more and more centralized um, onto these uh, platforms, as more and more communications um, kind of comes onto these platforms, as more organizations become dependent on them. Um, And what ended up happening was that over 2016, we saw a lot of these issues um, kind of really come to pass. I have actually weirdly gotten a lot more optimistic since then. Um, but what I ended up doing out of that was I started. Oh, we're getting a little bit of feedback. Uh, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> um, I started um, kind of looking at all of these different dynamics around platform accountability and the range of organizations and users um, that are. Um, impacted by the different things that platforms do. In terms of Twitter, uh, what has put me in a really good position is that I I actually got about a year ago a grant to study the verified badge system, um, which has turned out to be very well timed. Yes, Um, it is. Like, shout out to Shally Pittman for finding you. I'm like, well done. So yes, you are uniquely positioned to talk about this very relevant moment at Twitter. Exactly. Um, And so I haven't been looking at it just on Twitter. I've been looking at it across the platform industry. So I've been looking at, you know, the role that these badges are playing in balancing these two logics of the internet uh, that we're seeing kind of converge into these spaces. This mass media logic that is like increasingly becoming reproduced in these spaces and this participatory logic. Um, And I've used the verified badge system as a way to, to investigate that. In terms of Twitter specifically as well, I actually like, I was called on a few months ago to put together a lecture on using SEC filings as a methodology. And so I went back into Twitter's and just very kind of coincidentally went back and and traced everything that Musk was doing through these SEC filings. So uh, we can talk a little bit about that as well. Oh, I would love to talk to you about all of that. And it's nice to know that, you know, as a young person, you were able to see both kind of the negative impact of you know, social media or the internet or connecting via chat room, as well as seeing like the benefits of, you know, finding folks who had similar experiences, similar identity. If you want to join this conversation, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Call with your questions about Twitter, your comments about social media, what you think freedom of speech should look like online, what you think we should, you know, not allow online? Um, What's the role of censorship? What is internet etiquette? We're talking about it all here today on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. Robin, I'm really curious, like, as, you know, 
I think kind of the whole idea or whole premise um, behind Elon Musk taking over Twitter was that he wanted to expand uh, Twitter's definition of free speech. Um, and I, I think, you know, given the work that you've done, I, I think that that's something that is really complicated. I think when you hear free speech, you think, yeah, people should be able to say what they want to say and talk about the way they think, even if we don't all agree with them. Um, and that there is kind of a natural consequence for stepping outside of those bounds that the platform doesn't necessarily have to impose. Um mm -hmm. Kanye has has gotten a lot of press recently. So, folks, if you're out there and you really want to talk about Kante, Kanye's anti-Semitism, give us a call. The number is 608-256-2001, extension 9, to, to get through to the show. Um, but, you know, what what do you think, what is the etiquette or the decorum that should be promoted on a platform? What is the the standard of what free speech should look like online? So, I mean, that's a very complicated question because these are spaces that exist for many different groups um, and they exist for people all over the world um, with kind of different, both conceptions of speech and speech needs. Um, what's kind of interesting about the way that conceptions of freedom of speech have really developed is that like many of the early platform um, founders did not differ that much in terms of their conception of what freedom of speech should look like from what Elon Musk does today. So many of them kind of entered into this space with, with a much more absolutist, more libertarian version of, of freedom of speech. Um, what ended up happening is that as those people kind of progress, uh, or as these companies progress, they go through a process where firstly, they're, they're trying to appeal to different um, stakeholder groups as a way to develop a, like, a more sustainable business model. For many of these social media platforms, their main business model is advertising. Um, and so what you really start to see is that, you know, they both are adapting their version of freedom of speech to retain users on their network, uh, because there's a lot of people who, you know, will not want to stay online if they are, for instance, being harassed, um, if there is a significant amount of racism or anti-Semitism or, or sexism on sites, those people might go off. Um, advertisers as well are fairly, um, uh, are, are fairly kind of nervous group. Um, and so you start to see these platforms kind of really um, adapt uh, what their model of free speech really is um, to kind of make both users and um, advertisers as like a stakeholder group more comfortable with, with being on their platforms. <clears throat> and that's really what we saw kind of Musk encounters well in a very short time period. So he um, had a both an ideological goal um, with acquiring um, Twitter and he also obviously had a revenue goal. His ideological goal is that, um, you know, like a lot of these early internet founders, he has this idea of what speech should look like. He has this idea of, you know, um, the old guard versus the new guard, although arguably platforms are becoming the old guard now. Um, and he wants to kind of even that out. And so his, like he does, he doesn't like traditional media. And that's why he came in and, and took this, the actions that he did take immediately. Um, now, unfortunately, that really, or unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, I don't, yeah, <laughs> I am not a fan of Musk at all, but within his perspective, um, you know, that really conflicted with his revenue goal, um, which was, um, you know, really reliant on these advertisers that were also reliant on this kind of same system that he was trying to, trying to destroy and, and even out. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Does that that, that completely makes sense to me. But I think, you know, what we're not getting to is, I think, so part of the, the reason I think this conversation is really complicated is when, when you talk about what is free speech, what is acceptable, 
I think what we start to talk about is cultural norms um, mm-hmm. and racism and anti-Semitism are normal in our culture. Um, mm-hmm. You know, m- monitoring the way women dress is normal in our culture. I, I watched a documentary that was all about uh, Facebook and who gets censored on Facebook. And it was a lot of like moms breastfeeding. And that was like what. And then there was an example of a person who had killed their spouse and recorded it. And that was left up for days, for for days and days and days. And that in comparison to somebody nursing a baby that's down 20 minutes later and, you know, the, the parent has been kicked off the site for, you know, a month because of their, their poor conduct on the Internet. Um, I think, you know... I, I, I'm curious about, you know, how you think personally around the difference between what is normalized within our culture and therefore acceptable to some extent um, and what is dangerous or unsafe. I, it's such a hard conversation when you're talking about media uh, because, you know, there's that old adage, does, you know, art imitate life or does life imitate art? And that, that is very true of media spaces. Um, and that is a big question that I think a lot of scholars are asking now um, around, you know, the, what the role is that these platforms are playing um, in um, exacerbating some of these effects through, like, the different um, ways that they are prioritizing information or people often refer to amplifying. And in what ways, you know, we're just seeing a lot of these dynamics just move online. Um, And that is, you know, a lot of what we have seen over the last few years. There was this perspective that, you know, the internet was becoming much more far right and much more radical. Realistically, what was happening is that you had an older group of users that were already quite kind of racist and conservative that were learning how to use these spaces and were coming online. Um, And when you're a media scholar, the truth of the matter is, is that you actually can't separate the two. There is no way to study media effects, we call it. (laughs) It's that like, it's just very difficult to- to Well, I I would kind of challenge that or push back by saying like, you know, propaganda, right? Like something that is intended to influence folks to think a specific way and potentially about a specific group of people is highly effective, right? If we do start to say over and over again, this group of people is bad, people start to buy into that, especially if they don't actually know anybody who has that identity. Um, I think that's why folks have been so outraged uh, by, by Kanye's comments is that like, it's not just that Kanye needs to be censored for being anti-Semitic, it's that there is a material consequence for aiming hate speech at Jewish people. Um, And so I think, you know, I think it is it's a challenging it's a challenging conversation, but a really necessary conversation to talk about, like, what are the consequences of, you know, not having any standard of decorum online? What what does that mean for for people and what does that encourage? Um, And I think you know, after Donald Trump lost his Twitter account, you know, while president, um, I think folks started to really realize the the power and influence that is concentrated um, via social media. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, how how your work and your resor- research has captured, I guess, some of what it means to promote certain kinds of messages online. So I'm not saying that it doesn't have an impact. I'm saying that the variables are impossible to separate. So there's Mm. no way to study really the impact. Um, Mm. So like when you think about something like, you know, Kanye's anti-Semitic comments, you know, the way that a media scholar would like look at that and say say that, yes, there is a potential impact that could have. Uh, but how do we study that in relation to the beliefs that people already had versus the beliefs that they acquire? And that's actually just a very difficult thing to disentangle. In terms of my own research, though, and what I have done, um, so I um, I do think it has an impact, um, but not necessarily in that way, because, again, it's very, very difficult to study. But I, I grew up in Canada. And in Canada, we do not have the same concept of freedom of speech. We have both a concept of freedom of speech and a a concept of freedom from speech. And the way that I have always looked at this um, and um, what I think is kind of always really important 
to remember is that, you know, when we are talking about freedom of speech, we are talking about also the conditions that make it comfortable for the most amount of people to speak. So when you have people who are communicating racism, are communicating sexism, anti-Semitism, if they are pushing those people offline, then what freedom of speech is there? If, if those people are feeling like they do not have the power to come into these spaces and speak because they are being harassed, uh, because they are being targeted, um, then their speech has been impacted as well. So there is an equilibrium that these platforms really need to um, find in, in balancing those two. Also, because, as you said, with the breastfeeding example, what we often find, like, it is just a mistake um, to assume that these platform companies will always be on your side when they are making these decisions. Often we found, we have found that, like, these, uh, many of these kind of speech prohibitions that are, um, are developed by platforms are not always used against the powerful. They are often used against the most vulnerable. So there is like a real balance there that we need to strike. And there is a lot of oversight that we need to, to put in. Most of my work specifically around content moderation looks at the different models of moderation um, that different platforms use. So the larger platforms and in their industrial model, the smaller platforms and their more case by case and the kind of community reliant ones and looks at it as a set of trade-offs in terms of how they balance those two extremes. Um, yeah, which is a really unsatisfying answer, but most social scientists will give very unsatisfying answers. <laughs> I, I don't think it's an unsatisfying answer. I think it's a realistic answer. And I really appreciate you saying, you know, I think there's a presumption that the media site will be on your side. And so I think being critical of moderators as, as somebody who's done that work um, is kind of one of the more interesting conversations we can have, you know, mm -hmm. um, because if you know, we're saying you don't want it to be kind of this free for all of racism and bigotry and harassment and harm. Um, but you also don't want, you know, censorship that is disproportionately aimed at the people who have the least power. Um, and so can you can you talk a little bit about, you know, how how you approached being a moderator and censorship, um, you know, what what you think that role should look like or could look like? So I have never been, I have only ever studied moderators and systems of moderation. Um, there's a, how do I think it should look like? I, I mean, I think that there is a lot of room right now for experimenting with different models. The model that I have always really liked um, that I think is really effective, but is by no means perfect is this kind of distribution of power that you see on a site like Reddit or, or Wikipedia. But again, that those sites have really big diversity and hate speech like issues as well for a variety of reasons. But what you have on a site like that is that you have like a base level of rules that the site itself adopts. And then you have these different sub, sub communities. And those sub communities are governed by a different set um, of rules that are specific to those communities. So we see that playing out on a new, it's not new actually, but it's new to a lot of people site called Mastodon, which is now becoming um, the um, anti-Twitter or the alternative to Twitter for a lot of people who are um, trying to leave um, Musk's Twitter. And that is like one of these really interesting models of moderation. You have these different servers um, that can interact but are pretty much their own spaces. You can make your own server. It's called an instance. And each of those instances are um, governed by a different set of rules and a different way of moderating as determined by the administrator. Um, and so it gives people a lot of choice. Again, it's a pretty high barrier to entry, though. So that's another big problem. Um, but it also lets you people really experiment with different rules, um, different ways of moderating that are more tailored to a specific sub-community. Um, and the norms and culture that um, that they want to uh, to promote within that group. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I appreciate the examples of things, you know, that you're like, oh, I like this example and it still has 
this problem. I think it's really hard to say, here's how we're going to get rid of racism online if we haven't gotten rid of racism in our society, right? Like, it's really hard to say, here's how we're going to get rid of homophobia. And I think there is folks, I think this is one of the most complicated things about kind of racism or homophobia or sexism is that... um, There are folks that believe that they have every right to be racist, that they have every right to be homophobic, that they have every right to be sexist. And I guess there is a part of me that wonders, like, who are we to say that you do not, Uh, uh, except for that, you know, as a as a black woman um, who identifies as queer, I'm like, I'm impacted by that in a way that is, you know, devastating um, and can be Mm -hmm. really dangerous. And so I, I think about, you know, what, who gets hurt if a breastfeeding picture stays on Facebook versus who gets hurt if Kanye West uh, is spouting off anti-Semitism on Twitter? Um, and those things seem really, really different to me. If you are just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name's Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking about the chaos at Twitter with our guest, Dr. Robin Kaplan. Um if you want to join this conversation, if you're, you know, thinking about getting off Twitter, worried about, you know, social media and its impact on young people, give us a call today at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter at WORT Talk or a public affair page on Facebook. So this is a, a good, you know, conversation to have on a variety of platforms, um, and we'd love to hear from you today. Robin, I am curious about kind of, you know, what what you think are, I guess, the the things, the like recent changes that have been made to Twitter. Um, what are what are the consequences of of those recent changes? So I want to hone in on the the pay um, for the verification blue check thing um, because you recently like leaned into that work a little bit and I just thought that was a really interesting you know shift right because you are you're talking about like Eli Musk wants to make Twitter profitable um and wants I mean wants to keep Twitter profitable or profit from Twitter himself Mm -hmm. um and he you know he wants folks to stay engaged and that seemed like kind of a good way to do it right is to ask people to pay people were interested in paying um, to get the blue verification thing. So what what does that what does that change mean and and what do you think the consequences of it were? So well, I mean what's firstly interesting about this is that Twitter has never really been profitable. So that's like it, it had like one really profitable year in 2019 and that was like a really, really rare year. And since then it's been losing money. Before that it was losing money. It has never really been a profitable company. This has been something that they have always really struggled with. Um, in terms of verification and what he did, you know, what he did was that there was, a, you know, a recognition, and I think a correct recognition, um, that verification is a product that Twitter sells. Um, and the problem was, though, is that he decided he was going to sell that product um, to anybody willing to pay $8 without doing any of the work of actually verifying. So it changed the meaning of what verification was. There was no verification taking part. It just became kind of like a meaningless blue check. And in so doing, he changed the value or like significance of that blue check, which meant that it lost it. So that was one thing that, you know, one big problem that 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 uh, that happened with how he kind of implemented that. The second thing is, is that verification, I don't think people realize, (laughs) I keep on joking about this. I've been doing this work on the verified badge system for about a year now, and I was trying to get it funded before that. And it is like such a strangely understudied part of the internet. This blue check is so coveted and just nobody has really looked at it. And part of the issue is that I think that a lot of people in, in Musk, as well, um, saw the kind of social significance of this blue check, but they didn't understand the kind of infrastructural role that it has started to play in the internet. And most platforms have implemented some sort of blue check system. And it does have, you know, it does signify some sort of social status. There are lots of different conditions of notability, but what it also does is that it serves a kind of a security mechanism. It also signifies a different relationship between an account and the public. So it plays a role for 
users in the public. It, it plays a very important role to people within particular professions. So within the journalism industry, it plays a really important role in terms of um, indicating to different sources that you are who you say you are. Um, so it has been serving this infrastructural role, both for platforms in like both positive and negative ways, I would say. It's being used a lot by platforms um, as a way to give guarantees, for, for instance, to advertisers um, that they are against kind of advertiser friendly content. Um, but it's also been playing a lot of other different infrastructural roles. <laughs> um, in terms of a public interest role, um, it's also been playing that for some of the platforms. So Twitter um, was one of these companies that um, used their blue check system as a way to identify and elevate experts within um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, which we are still in currently. Um, so, so yeah, there is a kind of a social role that these checks have played, um, but there is a, a very important infrastructural role as well um and elon you know didn't really think about that he, he kind of obliterated <laughs> that is the impression that i've gotten is that he has taken something that people valued um and and made it kind of worth worthless and then actually stopped doing that um there were some other consequences in terms of people's ability to impersonate other people um which you know I think had some really interesting ramifications. Can you talk a little bit about people's ability to uh, to imitate, you know, accounts that at one time were verified? Mm -hmm. I mean, so that was like, I'd say the only really good part of this is that he said he was bringing comedy back to Twitter and it was really funny for a few days there. Uh, because, because like, you know, the internet did what the internet did and there's a lot of bad parts of the internet, but I love the funny parts. And people came on impersonated, firstly, Elon Musk, which made him very upset in a very predictable way. And then they started going after brands. Um, and what they did was that they impersonated a brand account. They did something so that like with Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical company, thank you, they, um, said, <laughs> said that insulin was now free. As it should um, be. As it should be. Uh, it's much cheaper in Canada, but I guess we're not. <laughs> no, we can we can talk about how Canada <laughs> wants people who are diabetic to be able to get medication yes. without going <laughs> bankrupt. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in that degree, like to that to that point, like it was kind of a funny moment of like where. It, it was a it, it's an, an important acknowledgement that, yes, the, these do provide kind of a, a security function. Um, and in some cases, like that security function was pretty fun for people to mess with um, because they got to speak as these brands in really interesting and provocative, politically provocative ways. Uh, but it also lost those companies a, a pretty significant amount of money. Um, and so we will see what happens out of that. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I'm like, I, I think that it's interesting when there's kind of the the Robin Hood variation of, of what it means to be online, right? Like, can you use the internet to subvert the the system? Um, and I think watching that happen on on Twitter has been has been fascinating over this very brief time um, where Elon Musk has been in charge. We do have a caller joining us um, that I'd like to to bring on the air. So. Thank you for, for joining us today on WORT. This is a public affair. I'm Ali Muldrow. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. Um, what a what a perfectly timed show. Um, and you're, I really find your guests really knowledgeable and, and so far very, uh, very fair. Um, as far as the way I see that blue check verification is uh, whoever has one of those is a real person. I get so frustrated when I go online on Facebook and I'm immediately attacked by these bots and these people with these fake accounts, which you can figure out really quickly. And, and that is like the most frustrating thing. Um, so my, the question I wanted to ask or, or bring up is, uh, so I'm a retired clinical chemist. I worked in the toxicology section at the state lab here. Um, I understand how to do scientific research. Um, so I've been censored when all I'm really putting out there is published peer-reviewed papers that, that no one, none of the mainstream media even knows about. So I've been censored not only like from MSN and Facebook, 
but locally too off of next door <laughs> digest and i can't comment on channel 3000 and madison newspapers hasn't published a letter to the editor of mine when they when they used to do one every month so what i want to ask your guest um i mean i know there's no place for racism or uh hate speech or anti-semitic but the number of scientists and doctors who have been censored and banned for basically going against the narrative of COVID, I just mm-hmm. want to say thank God I discovered the platform Rumble because all the doctors that have been censored and banned are on Rumble now. Uh, I challenge any of your viewers to go on Rumble and type in, for example, spike protein cancer and see what's, what's really going on. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, again, I, I just think this is a perfectly timed show. Oh, thank you so much for calling in with your question. And, you know, you're not censored here at WORT 89.9 FM. Um, so there's there's still there's still space for you to, to share your opinion and your information. And um, I'm glad you gave us a call today. Robin, how do you want to respond to, to that? I mean, it's very hard. I understand that, like, you know, a lot of these like platform. I first say I don't know what the the content is of what you're posting. I think is also the the important element of this. So I don't know what is happening that is kind of violating whatever rules that the platform has in place or this specific media outlet or anything like that. And that can often be really opaque and, and really frustrating. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, all I want to do is kind of really acknowledge that, that it is like can be a very kind of complicated and, and opaque system um, for people of all perspectives, though. Um, so one thing that like I really learned through my research is that, you know, a lot of these rules impact people of every single political ideology, every race, every religion, every gender. Um, it is, the, these systems are often kind of very big and, and complicated to understand, both in terms of like the rules that are made and how they are implemented. Um, and so it often feels like it's something that is being very kind of targeted um, and biased towards a particular perspective, but sometimes it does transcend. And, and I, I just empathize that it, it's very difficult to understand and, and navigate. I really appreciate that that caller bringing up kind of the, the relationship we had with social media during the pandemic um, because spreading misinformation, whether we're talking about elections and we just, you know, made it through the midterms or we're, we're talking about, um, you know, public health, uh, the, the role of social media and misinformation has been something that we're really like starting to hone in on. I also really appreciate talking about bots um, because I just, I like my dad got on Twitter, like, I don't know, three or four years ago and like was friending all these very attractive young women. And I was like, dad, that is like they are. That is not real. Like it was such a heartbreaking conversation to explain to him that that is that is not real. Um, So, yeah, talking about kind of, you know, being able to to tell you're having an authentic interaction with a person and also talking about like misinformation, like what does it mean for us to really need to have accurate information about COVID. And, you know, there's a lot of people who felt really shut down um, by information that was not accurate, um, being, you know, removed from the internet or kind of having these warnings that were showing up when you were talking about COVID or disclaimers around COVID. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic reshaped our relationship with the need for accuracy online? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what was really interesting about COVID, it wasn't just COVID, actually, there was a few other different kind of um, public interest oriented events, um, like the election and also the census, where we saw the platforms start to take and have an easier time justifying intervening. And part of that was in this need to, yes, balance, you know, access to information, participatory access to information with the availability of good information and what the kind of like the distinction between those two things really is. 
Um, and so um, most of the platforms did this where they started um, through a variety of different ways. Again, it wasn't like the only model that was available on these sites. So you could still say, you could still spread a lot of bad information about COVID. Um, but what they were trying to do with it is that they were trying to elevate good sources of information. So you had something like Facebook implemented a COVID-19 information center. Um, Twitter used the blue check mark to elevate you know, experts within particular areas. And what I really liked that they did, and what I think is actually really important within these moments, is not just to only go for these centralized sources because there's a lot of communities particularly within the united states a lot of different communities that don't have a lot of trust uh, within particular sources of information and so some of these platforms twitter especially actually back um pre-musk what they tried to do was they tried to look at for experts within particular communities um, which i think is actually like a, a pretty effective way um to to balance these two things with like you know, having this centralized um, system of information with the need to acknowledge that, you know, people trust people within their communities maybe more than they might um, trust a centralized uh, figure. And understanding that dynamic and continuing to understand that dynamic is probably, I think, probably very key in um, stopping a lot of the, the misinformation that we that we still tend to see. I I think there the the hardest thing about misinformation is what is misinformation and to me um saying that you know Biden didn't win the presidency um that's mm -hmm. false like and I think there's a lot of indicators uh, in terms of like entire tickets and all the different elections that would be impacted by a, a presidential election um rendering a false result. But to me, that's misinformation. Now, there's a large swath of the American public that very much believes that their their election was stolen from them, that their country was stolen from them. Um, and so how, how do you decide whose information is misinformation? How do you decide what what accuracy and reality is? Um, and I do think like it's a scary place to be in a society that is deeply divided about what is real and what isn't. Um, and, and can you talk to us a little bit about that? It is a very scary place. I will say that like the current system is that it is really up to these the owners of these spaces and it has always really been that way when we talk about media environments so fox news has a version of the truth that they put out versus you know another outlet might have a, a version of, of the truth uh based on what they put out and and then yeah, but I, i'm just gonna say this i'm like the truth doesn't have versions like no, the truth does not have versions <laughs> like i just i just i'm like i there <laughs> no i know so that but that is just the hardest it's not a beyonce truth. song it's not right. like something you can remix like accuracy and precision yeah. is you're either hitting the target or you're not um exactly. and 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 i think you know as an educator i wonder about you know what this says about our critical thinking in our in our society our ability to to reason um but yeah I, so I, yes i completely agree with you when but when you're studying media spaces like what you are saying is right. And we have like a variety of different ways to determine accuracy and objectivity, whether we have them through things like the scientific method, whether we have them through like practices like journalistic verification. But the system of media that we have within the United States is such that you have mostly private owners of media. Um, and it is not just in terms of like, you know, what they are covering and the systems of validation that, you know, we trust in, that we rely on to give us, to move us closer and closer to objectivity and truth. But um, it's also in terms of what they choose to cover and what they, what they don't choose to cover. And so we've kind of always existed in these spaces where like, um, our environment and what we see and what we don't see is very shaped by these media owners. And that is true of platforms as well. So most of these platform companies ha have a version of um, the world that they are trying to promote. They are constantly kind of tinkering with that version. So we saw that with um, years and years ago in the clickbait era, uh, we kept on seeing differences in how um, Facebook was doing things like defining quality and high quality news. So yes, there is the truth. Then within that, there's different ways that the, the different media spaces can kind of tinker with how things are, are represented. Um, in terms of how it should happen, 
I mean, we're talking about deep, deep divides within the United States that have been arguably always there um, and um, have arguably been deepening over the last 40 or 50 years. So it is a very difficult question, and it's not one that I, as a Canadian, am, am really... <laughs> I I appreciate that you're like as a Canadian um, this is you know a problem I'm just getting used to um, I I want to ask about kind of expertise in in the context of misinformation uh, a, a, a person I recently interviewed said um, that the more women have PhDs and you are Dr. Robin Kaplan, the more women are experts, the less we trust experts because it means we have to listen to women. They have authority. And we all know that you can't be going around trusting women for information. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how our relationship to expertise and accurate information has changed as the folks who have access to being experts, the demographics of people who have access to education, who have access to political positions has changed. And our faith in those people in those positions has changed as the demographics have shifted. I mean, I think you just said it <laughs> like that is like, honestly, I have never really thought about it that way. But you, you see it with every other professional community as well. I remember I, I originally went to school to become a psychologist. And when I was doing that, I was got really into the history of therapy and um, the history of medicine in general and um, looking into how, you know, women used to be the bearers of medicine and then suddenly it gets professionalized um, and then rates and, and like um, salaries start going up and it starts beca becoming something that is respected. It's the same with, you know, teaching. Teaching used to be a male profession and then suddenly, you know, women start dominating it and then standardized testing starts getting implemented and salaries go down and it becomes, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had like a, a good answer to this. I had never really, I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection yet. Um, and I think that there's really something to it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm like, I think who we're listening, who we're listening to and why we listen to people and what, you know, I, I had a really good friend who said, you know, as a kid, I just was like, oh, yeah, if a white guy is saying it, it's true. You know, if a white guy tells me it's going to rain tomorrow, it's going to rain tomorrow. Like her whole perception of what was accurate was associated with one identity being the primary trusted person who gives information. And now that that has really shifted. We've got just a few minutes left. So I want to get us back to Twitter because there's a lot there. I'm like, there is a lot to talk about when it comes to this, you know, this this shift in, in what Twitter is going to be now that Elon Musk owns it. Um, and I, I'm curious about kind of the the relationship with you know firing everybody um or i shouldn't say firing everybody but firing huge swaths of people who work for twitter and people leaving twitter um mm -hmm. so is twitter kind of this sinking ship that people are being both thrown off of and getting off of willingly or um is that one way the story is being told and honestly that conversation is making people more interested and and people are kind of sticking around to watch the car crash I think both. Uh, I mean, it's he he got rid of about fifty percent of staff. Then you and he got rid of an even higher percentage of contractors a few days ago. Then when you do kind of that kind of massive amount of layoff, you'll generally have a number of employees that will quit um, either because you know. They've just seen um, people that they really care about get laid off in a in this way, a particularly unfeeling way, or you know their jobs are now impossible. So, and that's something that we really saw with Twitter, uh, where like I read a, one um, story where one person now had seventy five direct reports. They decided to do you know a staff call. Um, not realizing that 75% of their staff was now in Europe. And so the meeting time that they had set up was, is actually, was actually 1.30 a.m. over there. So, like, it causes all this kind of disorientation. For Twitter itself, you know, we are hearing reports that people were laid off in the middle of pushing changes um, to the website. Um, they were just kind of logged off of Slack and, and locked out of their computers. And we're also seeing a lot of reports of bugginess um, on the um, on the platform as well in response to that. So the big question is, is, you know, 
the only thing that's kind of working in Musk's favor is that huge swaths of the tech industry have, have done mass layoffs. And so you have a lot of people who are looking for work right now. Um, and so if he does decide to do a big hiring round and that that might work in his favor where he gets a lot of talent but i really don't think so given everything reputationally that's already gone on we saw that we know that facebook is having a harder time or meta now is having a harder time with that um, because of things that have happened over the last couple of years um, but you also have just you know key points of knowledge that are lost um, so twitter was locked out of its own twitter account for 12 days because <laughs> he laid off <laughs> the people who had the account information. Um, and so there's some parts that, you know, it will be very hard, even if he goes on a huge hiring speed, to get those people up to speed without having anybody there that actually knows the ins and outs. It's, it's going to be very difficult. I could talk to you forever. I'm like, this is such a such a satisfying and informative conversation and just fun to have with you. But I have just a couple minutes left. So I want to ask, I guess, one of the more idealistic questions of, of this conversation, which is, you know, what do you hope transforms by the time your kiddo is old enough to jump online? What do you, you know, what do you think is worth saving in terms of social media and these platforms? Um, what do you hope goes away? Uh, what do you think would, would make these places better and safer and, you know, places that can protect and respect young people? Oh man, that is a very good question. You know, there is a lot of social media that I, that I would preserve. Um, it is a, a space where a lot of people have the power to speak that they didn't have the power to do through traditional media in the past. And I think that that is a really important thing to preserve um, in areas all over the world. It is a space where you can really make, you can make friends and you can keep friends over um, geographic space and time. And that's a very positive thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, I would like, I would like to see these companies kind of act more responsibly. I would like them to direct resources towards the things that their users especially want them to direct resources to. So they want these spaces to be safer and more welcoming to everybody. Um, they want people to not be harassed. They want to rid these sites of, of racism and uh, sexism. And, um, and so I would like to see these companies kind of invest more, but I would also like to see more alternatives. Um, things like mass, things like Macedon are a good, a, a good um, start, um, where people can experiment a little bit more with kind of new models of governance, um, ways to collaborate a little bit more, ways to take ownership over online spaces um, and make things a bit more democratic. Oh, I really appreciate that answer. And I have one last question and one last minute to ask it. Um, there has been kind of this looming energy that Trump is coming back to Twitter. Do do you think folks are kind of buckling their seatbelt to see what it'll mean um, politically for for Donald Trump to have access to that platform again? I mean, if the site is still up and running in a month, then I think that that's <laughs> probably a bigger concern. But I really don't. I'm not. I do not know yet. You know, obviously. Musk is kind of banking on that um, to try and keep people on the platforms. That will also cause like a really weird dynamic because journalists were in a very strange relationship with Twitter and Trump um, where they, you know, could not stop really engaging um, on the platform because that was where he was. So I, I, I'm not quite certain what will happen. I know it won't be good. For many, many of us. But you know what? This was an absolute like pleasure to get to talk to you, Robin. Thank you for joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro, and we'll be back next week. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic.